looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 10 to 17 today. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross, be, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Well, there's a few episodes of uh, television show Seinfeld where this character named Izzy Mandelbaum appears. And Izzy is like this 80-plus-year-old fitness guru who's always looking for a competition. And so he wants to challenge Jerry, who's 40-some years younger, to a weightlifting competition. And, of course, when he does that, he hurts his back and ends up in the hospital. And then uh, Jerry goes to the hospital to visit Izzy. He feels bad about what happened. And then Izzy's son shows up, who's like in his 60s, and his son wants to challenge Jerry as well. And so he challenges Jerry to lift up this TV, and he hurts his back as well. So then after that, Izzy's father shows up, and his father's probably near 100, and his father challenges Jerry as well to lift up this TV. And, of course, his father ends up in the hospital as well. And so you have the three of them lined up in hospital beds there, and they keep repeating, repeating this refrain, So, you think you're better than me. So, you think you're better than him. You think you're better than us. You know, and... Of course, it's a humorous look at people who are ultra-competitive, who want to prove that they're better than other people, but I think that all of us have this kind of sinful tendency, whether it's conscious or unconscious, to be better than other people. Psychologists actually talk about this uh, principle called the superiority illusion, and that principle states that many people uh, tend to overestimate their positive characteristics. We tend to think that we're more attractive than we are. We think, tend to think that we're better drivers than we actually are. And we tend to think of ourselves as better than we actually are. It shouldn't surprise us because that's really the heart of what pride is. And the theologians of old used to talk about pride as being kind of the core or the root uh, root sin of sins, so to speak. The Macmillan Dictionary defines pride uh, pretty well when it says pride is a feeling that you're better or more important than other people. And uh, this is unfortunately a part of our sinful human nature, and pride is pervasive. Uh, it influences us from like the earliest ages we're filled with pride. It's part of our sinful nature. I remember when I was a kid, I used to collect sports cards. And I would take my best cards and I'd put them in cases and then occasionally I would go and uh, show that collection to a friend. And that my friend would show the collection to me. And of course what I wanted to do in showing my friend that collection, I wanted to show the friend that my cards were better. And if they weren't better, then I'd try to trade my friend to get the better cards. When my brother was uh, growing up, it was the Pokemon cards. It's like you'd have all these cards, and certain ones would be rare, and then if you had like a Charizard card, then you'd go around showing people, look at this card, I got this special Charizard card, it's more powerful than any of the other Pokemon. It starts from the youngest of ages when we 
have this pride that influences our heart, and it continues throughout our lives. What does it look like for adults? It could look like pride in possessions. It's like I have a nicer car than another person, or I wear nicer clothes, or I have a nicer house, or I have nicer jewelry. It can manifest itself in our children. It's like my children are better than your children. It can manifest itself in intelligence. I'm smarter than other people. It can manifest itself in a position. It's like I have a better job or a better title than this person or that person. It can manifest itself in uh, being a better, thinking that we're a better mom or dad than other people. It can manifest itself in independence. It's feeling that we don't need to hear from other people. Maybe that we even know better than God. It can manifest itself in being uh, independent and kind of failing to own up to our mistakes. We'll never admit that we're wrong. Pride can influence, uh, influence us in many different ways, and it's pervasive as a part of our culture. Uh, the writer David Brooks, Brooks, who wrote the book The Road to Character, observes how differently we deal with promoting our success in the present day versus in the past. He writes this, he says, The day after Japan surrendered in 1945 and World War II ended, sing, singer Bing, Bing Crosby appeared on the radio program Command Performance. And he said this, Well, it looks like this is it, he said. What can you say at a time like this? You can't throw your skimmer in the air. That's for a run-of-the-mill holiday. I guess all anybody can do is thank God it's over. He says, I was really surprised at this supreme moment of American triumph that they weren't beating their chest. They weren't super proud of themselves. They were deeply humble. He says, and I found that so beautiful and so moving. And I thought there's really something to admire in that public culture. Shortly after that, he watched a pro football game. As Brooks watched the pro football game, he observed something different. A quarterback threw a short pass to a wide receiver who was promptly tackled for a two-yard gain, and the defensive player got up and did what many professional players do these days as he puffed his chest and walked around in celebration as the camera lingered on his celebration. Brooks says this, It occurred to me that I had just watched more self-celebration after a two-yard gain than I had heard after the United States World one World War II. Pride is a pervasive part of our society. It's something that society even celebrates today. But not only is it pervasive, I think it's also insidious. And when I say insidious, I mean it's sneaky. It's crafty. It shows up in places that we would not expect it to show up. Benjamin Franklin once said this, There's perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of, I, or of my humility. So pride can manifest itself in kind of sneaky ways that we wouldn't expect. So, you know, we can understand pride as manifesting itself in terms of, like, pride in our possessions. But it also can be pride in not having possessions. We can pr take pride in shopping at Aldi versus shopping at Wegmans. You know, and have this prideful feeling, all right, if someone shops at Wegmans, maybe they're hoity-toity. Or we can take pride in shopping at Walmart versus shopping at The Gap. And so pride can sneak into our lives in ways that maybe we wouldn't expect it to sneak in. Pride can manifest itself in a preoccupation with what other think, others think. You know, and maybe we think to ourselves, well, I don't really think of myself as better than other people, but we're, we're just consumed with what other people think. Well, if we were, weren't prideful, we wouldn't 
care as much about what other people think. Maybe we rejoice inwardly when other people fall into sin. It makes us feel better about ourselves. Maybe we take pride in feeling like we're better Christians than other people. Maybe we can even take pride in doing spiritual disciplines. It's like we pray more than other people. We read the Bible more than other people. And so pride can sneak into our lives in ways that maybe we wouldn't always expect. And I think in the passage that we're looking at today, we've seen that pride does just that. Pride has infected the Corinthian spirituality And uh, Paul confronts the Corinthians over the fact that there's quarreling among them. And specifically, he says that each one has their own person. Uh, Each one says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, what was the issue here? The problem was not the messages. Sometimes people will read into the scripture and it's like, oh, Paul was preaching a different gospel than Apollos and different gospel than Peter. That's not the case. There was a unity here, as you can see throughout the text. They were all preaching the same message. So the problem was not with the messenger. The problem was how that was received. And each person, I think what was happening here was they were kind of judging Paul or Apollos or Cephas or others based upon the standards of Roman, Greco-Roman rhetoric. Uh, In the ancient world, uh, speaking was very popular. And so Uh, they would go around and kind of judge different speakers. And there were different standards for oratory. And so they would kind of judge the different speakers based upon those standards. And so they're looking at Paul and they're listening to his message. And they're like, all right, yeah. Some people were like, yeah, I I like Paul's message. He knows what he's talking about. Then other people are like, I I don't like Paul. Paul doesn't really know what he's talking about. I like Apollos. He really knows how to speak. And other people were like, oh, I don't know. Cephas really knows how to uh, apply it to real life. So everybody has their favorite, and they're choosing one over against the others. I think it's kind of familiar to how many people choose churches today. It's like we listen to this message and that message. It's like, which one is better? Which one is more interesting? And then we have, like, celebrity preachers that we like. You know, and we each have one that we like. You know, and some people are like, uh, I like David Jeremiah, or I like John Piper, or I like uh, Chuck Swindoll, or Tim Keller. And literally what it says in the text is, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Paul, I'm with Cephas. And we're like, I'm with these people. And we have every book by that, this, those particular, whoever our favorite may be, we have every book that they've ever written. We have their study Bible. We have the whole gambit of their library. We do it with worship music. Like some people are like, oh, yeah, I really love Hillsong. And other people are like, oh, I don't like Hillsong. Hillsong are a bunch of heretics. I like Maverick City music. And other people are like, oh, I don't like any of those. I like Chris Tomlin and Passion. And we have a tendency to pick out our favorite preacher, pick out our favorite music, and then identify with them. So what's the problem with that? The problem is not picking out a favorite speaker, a favorite pastor to listen to, a favorite music. I don't think there's any problem with that. There's nothing wrong in uh, having certain people that connected with us in different ways. And I certainly don't believe that God is calling for us to just have dry, monotone music, boring preaching. I don't think that God is calling for that either. So what's the problem with what's happening here? I think that the problem is, is the Corinthians are identifying with this leader rather than with Christ. What would it look like today? It would mean that instead of when you need uh, to know something in your life, when you need some direction in your life, you open up your study Bible, your uh, David Jeremiah study Bible or whoever it may be, and you go to the footnotes and read the footnotes rather than reading the Bible. 
Or you're at a crossroads in your life and you listen to a message by a certain pastor before you look at God's word. Or when it comes to music, it's like you can really get in the zone and you can really worship God when you're listening to passion at home, not so much in church. And it's like these particular individuals are the only way that you can connect with God. It's when we choose a person over then over Christ. Paul asked the rhetorical question. He says, is Christ divided? In other words, do you believe that Christ is one of many possible options? I mean, Paul is preaching Christ. Peter is preaching Christ. Apollos is preaching Christ. So how can you say, I follow one over the other? How can you say one is better than the other? They're all proclaiming the same Christ. I mean, is it Paul who died for you? Is it Paul whose name you were baptized into? Christ is the only one who matters. It doesn't matter who the messenger may be. And so he expresses his, he goes on and expresses his thanks to God that he only baptized a few people. Why is he thankful that he only baptized a few people? Can you imagine what the situation might have been if he had baptized a bunch of people in the city of Corinth? People might have gone around saying, hey, I know you're a Christian and you've been baptized, but hey, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. I was baptized by the the, the man. I was baptized by this great apostle. And all of these things are expressions of pride. When we look at one person over another, rather than looking to Christ as our ultimate source of satisfaction, our ultimate source of knowledge, they're expressions of pride, and they lead to division. And I think many Christians fall into these issues. There's a church once that had a sign in the front that said, Jesus only, and a storm came by and blew the letters, some of the letters away, so that it said, us only instead of Jesus only. And sadly, I think that's what happens oftentimes. It's like this idea that we're judges. Like we're judges on America's Got Talent. It's like my church is better than the church down the street, or the church down the street is better than mine, or the worship of my church is really good, but the pastor, he's pretty boring. A lot of you are thinking that right now. Or the worship kind of stinks, but the message is really interesting. It really connects with me. And I think when we do these things, the, the inevitable result is division because they're an expression of pride. I think there's few things that can cause conflict more than pride because pride is the enemy of unity. And what's interesting about pride is when we think about pride, we, uh, pride is essentially wanting other people to admire us wanting to feel better than other people, but pride essentially is repulsive to other people. Pride actually drives people away. Pride actually causes people to view us more negatively. I mean, who wants to be around people who are prideful and arrogant, full of themselves? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said this, There's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are themselves guilty. I've heard people admit that they're bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they're cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And the same, at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. 
think we're all filled with pride. We all have that human tendency. I remember years ago, I went to this conference, uh, listened to a very famous preacher, and uh, there was a question and answer time. And uh, one of the people there asked, so with all that you've done in your life, how do you stay so humble? And I love his response. He's basically like, so what makes you think that I'm so humble? He's like, I mean, I struggle with pride as well. I mean, I've dealt with these things. He said, basically, you know, when you're prideful, God's going to check you. God's going to show you who you are. Pride is something that we all struggle with more or less, and it essentially creates division. So what is the answer? What is the answer to fixing the division? Of course, the answer uh, is often fixing pride. This is the case in churches, but it's also the case in personal relationships often as well. Two social psychologists named Carol Tavares and Elliot Aronson wrote a book called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And they describe how a fixation on our own righteousness can choke out the life of love. They write, the vast majority of couples who drift apart do so over time in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses on what uh, the other thing is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and way of doing things. From our standpoint, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality difference, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. Self-justification is. Pride causes division. I remember a story is told by Andy Stanley. He says how he used to do a lot of premarital counseling, and he used to uh, draw a circle, and he would meet with you know um, different members uh, separately, and he'd say, "Okay, so here's the the circle of your marriage, and here's the problems in your marriage. What percentage do you think is yours? What percentage do you take responsibility for?" And it would be like they would have like a little tiny slice. And no matter what he wanted to do, he was trying to get them to focus on their little slice of fixing their slice of the marriage. They wanted to focus on the other person. And that's what our pride wants to do. It's to focus on other people that ultimately leads to division. So if we all struggle with pride and that often leads to division, how do we fix it? How do we deal with our pride? Well, I think there's a study that kind of points us in the right direction, points us to a biblical truth, illustrates a biblical truth. It's a study called the Robber's Cave Study. It was a study that was done by Muzaraf Sharif in 1954. And uh, it was a study that had some ethical uh, things with it that probably couldn't be done today. But it's an interesting study, nevertheless. So what they did was they took 22 11 to 12-year-old boys to this camp. And uh, their parents knew that it was a study, but they didn't have any idea that it was any kind of study. They thought they were going to a summer camp. And these were all well-adjusted kids, came from good families. And so the researchers separate them into two groups. And so there's two groups of 11, and they go there, and, and at first they're completely separated. They don't even know that the other group exists. And so they give them some time to just kind of bond as a group, and they you know, kind of build relationships with one another. And then they tell them, hey, just wanted to let you know there's another group on the camp as well. And so one group was called the Eagles, one was called the Rattlers, um, and as soon as they told them that there was another group on the camp, they started to have negative opinions of the other group. They started to ascribe negative opinions, and the researchers kind of tried to stir the pot a little bit, and uh, you know they did a number of things. One of the things that they did was they brought these two groups into competition with one another. 
So they'd have a tug of war and they'd have a baseball game and they would, the researchers would say, hey, whoever wins gets a trophy and a prize. And if you don't win, you don't get, get anything. And so they would get into these competitions and what they found was uh, it, there's an incredible amount of division that happened really quickly. They started to have really negative opinions towards one another. They burned each other's flags. One group raided the other's cabin. Uh, it got so bad that there were like fist fights and they had to be physically restrained from one another at times. And they were getting to a point where they just hated one another. So then they, that was kind of the conflict stage where they were trying to get kids riled up and it worked. These competitions and stuff got, got them going. And so then they're like, okay, so how can we resolve the conflict? So they started off and they brought the kids into kind of non-competitive fun activities. And uh, one was like a movie night and some dinners and things like that. And they found that these things didn't resolve the animosity at all. It kind of made it worse. So they'd go to dinner and they just, it'd kind of devolve into a food fight. So they hate each other. They're going at each other, you know, fist fights and all this. And so then they try something else called uh, superordinate goals. They introduced some superordinate goals. In other words, they introduced problems that both of them cared about and that they needed both of them to fix. So what they did was they turned off the water supply to the camp. Of course, they didn't tell the kids that. They just told them the water was broken. It wasn't coming into the camp. And so they had to work together to fix the water issue. They also had a truck that was bringing food that allegedly broke down on the road. And they had to work together to get that food into the camp. Even uh, at one point, I think they had to pull a rope to, to pull the, the truck into the camp. And what they found was when they introduced these superordinate goals, it didn't happen overnight, it didn't happen real quickly, but their perceptions of one another started to change. They started to have less animosity towards the other group, and these friendships started to form. By the time it was time to go home, some of the kids asked for the other group to ride on their bus with them. And on the way home, one group bought uh, drinks for the other group. The reason that that animosity was alleviated was because they focused on something bigger than themselves. They focused on a goal, on a mission they couldn't accomplish on their own. A goal or mission that influenced both of them. And I think that's true for us as well. When we focus on something bigger than ourselves, something outside of ourselves, and namely the glory of Christ and his mission, all of the pride disappears. All the animosity towards other people disappears. When we're focused on Christ, we're focused on his mission, nothing else matters. Paul says that God has sent him not primarily to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And I think that's our fundamental mission, to preach the gospel. And we need to run back to the gospel continually, each and every day. Because God stepped into human history. He sent his son to die on the cross for us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet in darkness. He came to the earth to die on the cross for us. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, we were once in the kingdom of darkness and he's given us a new hope, a new name, a new future. He's changed our reality. And really that's all that matters. That's the only thing that matters is Christ and his glory. And it doesn't matter what it looks like to get there. Doesn't matter if the, the sermon is boring. Doesn't matter if the worship leader sings a little bit off key. It doesn't matter if the notes are a little off. Of course, we want to strive for excellence for those things. 
But if we're focused on Christ, we're focused on his mission, ultimately that's all that matters. It's not that we're better than another church down the road or another church is better than us. We are all on the same team. We all are focused on the same Lord, the same king, and the same mission. And that's all that matters. God has gifted each and every one of us with different gifts to encourage the body of Christ. I've met pastors who are amazing speakers, but terrible people. I've met pastors who are terrible preachers, but amazing pastors. I've met worship leaders the same way, who are very talented, great worship leaders, but terrible people. I've met worship leaders who are terrible worship leaders, but great people. God sees the heart. And God has gifted each person according to his wisdom. A few years ago, uh, Stephanie and I went to a ministry conference up in Montreal. And uh, there's not a lot to do up in Montreal. So we were doing like the whole trip advisor thing and seeing, you know, what do we want to see while we're here. And one of the things that we were told we should go to is this basilica. And I'm thinking, okay, I've been to a lot of churches and doesn't really sound that interesting to me, but there wasn't a whole lot to see, so we walked all this way to this basilica. We get there, and it cost $5 to go into the basilica just to see it. I think five bucks to go in and see this church. But we had walked all this way and uh, didn't know when we'd get back there again, so I'm like, all right, let's just, let's just do this. We've, we're already here. And so we pay for our admission, and we walk down this hallway, and then I walk in, and I see the front of the sanctuary, and my jaw almost hit the ground. It was like the most amazing man-made thing I had ever seen in my life. It was just breathtaking. It's hard to even describe how beautiful this church was, well worth the price of admission. Now, when I saw that amazing sight, notice what I didn't do. I didn't pull out my pocket mirror and comb and say, wow, I really look nice today. When I left there, I didn't go and tell people, wow, I really had a good hair day today. No, I told people how great the sight was. I was focusing on something outside of myself. And when we see something glorious and majestic and beautiful like that, our pride disappears. It's like we get, we get a glimpse of who Jesus is. We get a glimpse of his gospel. And we get on mission following after him. We're not thinking about ourselves anymore. It doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter. All that matters is where we're going in Christ and his mission. See, pride is the enemy of unity, but the cross destroys our pride and facilitates our unity. When we see the glory of the cross, our pride disappears. Each year, Christmas time, I've seen a number of ads like this. Lexus does these ads where, um, like, one spouse purchases a car for the other spouse. Uh, I've never received a gift like that for Christmas. Uh, it must be nice, but I'd love to hear a Lexus, get a Lexus for Christmas. But there was one particular uh, commercial a few years ago where um, this man purchased this Lexus SUV for his wife, and he brought it into the house, and it was like under the tree or near the tree or whatnot, and it had this big bow on it. And his wife comes down on Christmas morning, and she looks, and she's astonished. But all she can say is, where did you get that big bow? It's like she just got a new Lexus SUV, and the thing she's focused on is the bow, the ornament, the accessory. 
I think we can do the same thing. Sometimes we get focused on the ornaments. We get focused on things that don't matter. We get focused on something that's not that important rather than the glory of Christ. May our, may our prayer be the same as Amy Carmichael, the famous missionary to India. She once said this, God, hold us to that which drew us first when the cross was the attraction and we wanted nothing else. God, hold us to that which drew us first when the cross was the attraction and we wanted nothing else. When the cross is the attraction, when Jesus is the desire of our hearts, when we are on mission with him, all the pride disappears. The only thing that matters is him and his mission. Pride is the enemy of, the, of unity, but the cross destroys our pride and facilitates our unity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you love us, even though we have this tendency to be filled with pride. Even though we have this tendency to do life on our own, to choose our ways over your ways. To choose to puff ourselves up over others, even though you've all made, you've made all of us in your image. Lord, I pray today, Lord, that we would not think less of ourselves, but we would think more of you. That as we see the glory of your cross, the glory of what you've done for us, that we would be changed. That we'd forget what lies behind. We'd forget about ourselves and be focused on you and the good things you have in store for us. Lord, give us the wisdom to see you as you are. And as we do that, Lord, melt away any selfishness, any pride, so that we'd be focused on doing what you've called us to do. In Christ's name I pray, amen.